Well, today as we begin this brand new year, I want to remind you that Jesus is the answer to every single question that you'll ever have in life. I don't care if it's questions about your health, your finances, your relationships. He is the answer. Just one single encounter with Jesus can change everything for you. And so what we're going to do here through the first part of this brand new year, and happy new year to you, by the way, is we're going to look at various encounters that Jesus has with people and how the encounters that he has with these various people, the lessons that can be learned from them that we can then apply to our own lives as well. Now, the first one that we're going to look at is a little bit unique, not so much in what happens, but in how it happens. You see, most of the stories we're going to look at throughout this entire series, it's going to be Jesus having these one-on-one encounters with people. But what I want to start the series with is helping you to see that sometimes that to get to Jesus, to have an encounter with Jesus, you need other people to help get you there. Whether it's the people in your church, whether it's the people that are in your life group. Again, sometimes you just need that little bit of a push or you need to be sort of picked up and carried to Jesus in order to have an encounter with him. And so the story we're going to look at here today is found in Mark chapter 2. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, you can. However, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to read the story to you today. I'm actually going to tell you this in story form. But I would encourage you to go through and read this story for yourself either later today or this evening. Now, the the story starts, there's a, a paralyzed man. And his whole world is lived on a three foot wide by six foot long mat. It's just laying there on the ground. Think of sort of like a beach towel, but something of a thicker material. And that's where he lives. That's his whole world is right there on that mat. He can't do anything for himself. He just lies there all the time. He needs someone to bathe him, to clothe him, to to feed him, to, to move him so he doesn't get bed sores. He has no way to to survive other than to just beg for food all day long. He has no hopes for the future. He has no family. He's got nothing. Now, he, he dreams each night of having a body where he can, he can run and he can walk and he can get married and have kids and go out and play with them. But then every single morning he wakes up and he's staring at the ceiling of a roof in a room that he'll never walk out of. He's looking at a body that holds him prisoner. And he's looking at this mat that is his entire world. So he doesn't seem to have anything except for one thing. This guy has probably the world's best set of friends. You see, there are four guys in the community that they've befriended this paralytic. And this is actually sort of odd, and it's unique because in that day and time, if you were born paralyzed or you were born with any type of handicap, most of the time they would just kill you at birth. And even if you weren't killed at birth, you were sort of seen as an an outcast of society. People didn't want to have anything to do with you because they assumed that either you sinned or your parents sinned, and that's what caused you to be born in this way. 
But yet these four guys, they befriend this paralytic. All the societal pressures said don't have anything to do with somebody like that. But yet they decide he's going to be our friend. And we're going to do whatever it takes for him. They're devoted to him. They make him a priority. And let me say this to you and ask you, those of you online, those of you here in the room, isn't that the kind of friend you want? That when you're down and society is against you and it looks like there's no hope for your life, don't you want friends that are going to come along and sort of carry you and, and help you in life? We all want that, right? But why don't we have it? Well, I put it on your outline if you're taking notes here today. Our mistake is we often try to create first century community on a 21st century timetable. Does that make sense to you? We want what we read about in Scripture in the first century of this, this deep relationships. The, the, the Bible would describe it as koinonia. That's the, the Greek word. It's this doing of life deeply together with just a handful of other people. We want that. But yet we try to do it on a 21st century timetable. How many of you have ever said to somebody before, hey, we should get together soon? Now be honest, how many of you have said that and then you never did it? Right? We're, we're trying to live life on this, this 21st century timetable of getting what we the results that they had in the first century. It just simply doesn't work. We're always in such a hurry. And even when we do get together with people, maybe we get together once a month with them. Or we decide to get together every other week. But that's not biblical community. Biblical community is you're doing life frequently. Biblical community was on a daily basis, but I know that probably we can't pull that off. But at least one or two times a week that we have these friends that we're, we're getting together with and we're encouraging one another and we're spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, as Scripture would say. But we don't do that because we're in a constant hurry to, to do all kinds of other things, and that means that we miss out on the most important things. Guess what I'm trying to say to you is, you can't microwave deep friendships. In the same way, you, you can't microwave your parenting. You, you can't microwave, you know, being a good spouse. You've got to take time. You've got to put effort. There has to be devotion. There has to be priority to make those things happen. It's the exact same way with our friendships. You can't do real biblical community in a hurry. You can't listen in a hurry. You can't care in a hurry. You can't show compassion in a hurry. You can't be generous in a hurry. You can't mourn in a hurry. You can't uh, rejoice with one another in a hurry. And one final thing you can't do in a hurry, and that is you can't carry somebody else's mat. That's what the guys are going to do for this man here in the story. They're going to carry his mat for him. You can't do that in a hurry. And here's what we need to understand. All of us, you online, we all have a mat. Your mat may not be because you're paralyzed like the man here in the story. Your mat may be an anger problem. Your mat may be an addiction. Your, your mat may be that that, you know, you, you get frustrated too easily, that you're not patient with other people. 
Maybe you're mad is that you have this desire and need to be in control. Maybe you're mad is that you have a, a secret of some sort, a, a sin of some sort. Maybe the map that you're lying on is a, a sense of failure and inadequacy or plainness or loneliness. In other words, none of us are perfect. We all have a mat in the same way this paralytic did. But what we do so often is we pretend that we don't have a mat. In other words, a lot of times we're doing what we may call mat management. I'm, I'm okay. Nothing wrong with me. What's ironic, though, is we are really good at spotting other people's mats, aren't we? Some of you think that one of the spiritual gifts in Scripture is mat identification. It's not. But you're good at pointing out everybody else's problems. But then you try to hide your own. Here's the problem with that. You may get really, really good at hiding your own mat, of hiding your own problems but you're never, ever going to experience the biblical community and friendships like we're about to see here in this story. And so let me ask you a question. A couple questions, in fact. These are rhetorical, but think about it. Who carries your mat for you sometimes? Who do you show your weaknesses and struggles to? Who do you ask to pray for you? Who do you let see your brokenness? If you want true biblical community, you're going to have to let other people see that brokenness in you, that you have a mat, that you need help. And sometimes you're going to have to say, somebody needs to carry this mat for me. Which brings us to the story then and what happens. Now, maybe it was so easy for these guys because literally there was the guy lying on the mat. And again, so maybe that, that's why it was easy for them to, to say, hey, we, we need to help our brother out here. But against all odds, these men, four able-bodied guys and this one paralytic, they form what we may call the fellowship of the mat. And so here, here's the story. Jesus has come into town and the, the four able-bodied guys, they hear that Jesus is in town, and they're like, hey, we should take our friend to go see Jesus. I mean, this would be a real encouragement to him, and perhaps, just perhaps, he really is the Messiah, like people have been rumoring that he is, and maybe he'll heal our friend. And so we need to take him to see Jesus. And so they go to their paralyzed friend, and they say, hey, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, we're going to come and, and pick you up and take you to see Jesus. Now, it's not like the man on the mat has much of a choice because when they say that they're coming to pick him up, literally they are coming to pick him up and take him. And what are they going to do? They're each going to take a corner of the mat, they're going to pick it up, and they're going to carry him to Jesus. So that's exactly what happens the next day. They go off to see Jesus. Here's the problem. When they get to the house where Jesus is teaching, it is completely packed. It's standing room only. In fact, as, as we read in, in Scripture here in Mark, he records that there's so many people there, they're outside the doors. It's like six, eight, ten rows deep of people trying to get in to be able to see Jesus. They had not anticipated this. This is a real problem. But they're desperate. We need to get our friend there to see Jesus. 
And so they get together in a, a little small circle, and, and the, the smart guy in the group, probably the, the older guy, he had like his MBA, right? He has a, like a, a degree in business. He's like, hey, guys, let's do a brainstorming session here. And remember, in brainstorming, there's no such thing as a dumb idea. And they're thinking, and they're thinking, and then finally the young guy in the crowd, he's probably one, he was all tattooed up, right, and he had the earring and stuff. He says, dudes, I got an idea. Let's go up onto the roof. Let's cut a hole in the roof, get some ropes, and lower our buddy down with the ropes. Crickets. Finally, the smart guy goes, does anybody else have an idea? Nothing, no. They've got nothing. They are so desperate to get their friend to Jesus that they say, you know what, we're going to do whatever it takes to get him there. They know that one encounter with Jesus could change everything. And so what they do is they uh, go and they get some ropes, they climb up onto the roof, ready to do a little bit of remodeling. Here's what you need to understand about roofs there in Israel. Houses were built, and then they had flat roofs. And so you would have had all the beams going across the top, and then what they would do is they would get reeds and branches, and that would be the cross sections that they would put on, and then they would get mud and spread all over that, and it would form almost like a concrete that we would have today. Okay, so are you picturing this in your mind? Here's these four guys that are up on the roof. They've carried their body up there, and they start to dig. Now, I want you to imagine you're in the house now. You're sitting there, and you're listening to Jesus, right? You were fortunate enough to be one of the early birds that got there. You're inside. You're listening to Jesus. All of a sudden, things are getting a little cloudy in the room. There's like dust all over the place. The next thing you know, there's like bigger flakes of dust coming, and the next thing you know, then there's like huge chunks of dirt that are falling. And so you stop listening to Jesus, and you look up, and what you see is a hole in the roof, four pairs of hands that are digging through, making that hole bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Now I want you to imagine being the homeowner. You look up, and you see a skylight being installed in your house, and you didn't ask for it. So you get on the phone, your State Farm, you know, Jake from State Farm agent, you know, you're, you're calling Jake and you're like, Jake, um, you know, I, I've got a problem here, but let me ask, can we call this a, an act of God? Because I mean, Jesus is here, so it's got to be an act of God, right? Is this covered? And then imagine the, the four guys that you're actually up there in, in your digging. Um, imagine the, the faith and the, the trust that you have to have in this whole process with Jesus. Because more than likely, Jesus doesn't want to be bothered while he's teaching. But yet, what are you doing? You're interrupting him right in the middle of his message. But you are so devoted to your friend that you say, you know what, there is no barrier that is going to get in our way, even if it means we got to crash through a roof. 
that's one of the points I want to make to you is communities get built by servants, but great communities get built by roof crashers. And that's who we need to be. We can't allow any barrier in our lives to keep us from building community with a handful of others, to establish our own fellowship of the mat, to have this biblical koinonia, this deep friendship with others where we're devoted to each other and we show each other huge priority. True friends are people who make major roof-crashing commitments to one another. But why don't we do that? Well, I already mentioned that some of it's just time. We just don't make it a priority. But here's another reason. Perhaps we've confused friends with friendly people. Let me explain. I had a guy, he called me the other night, and he called me by name. He, like, asked me how my day was going. He talked to me in very warm and caring tones. And then he told me, he said, Gilbert, I am concerned that you're spending too much money every month on your electric bill. Now, when I told him that I wasn't interested in what he was selling, I had a sneaky suspicion that perhaps our relationship and friendship was over. See, there's a difference between friends and friendly people. Does that make sense to you? Today, we, we live in a world of networking and constant contact and LinkedIn and all kinds of social media where we have a lot of quote-unquote friends and associates. And here's what happens so often. When the relationship isn't strategic anymore, when the, the sails dry up or the plane has landed, all of a sudden, the relationship is over. Now, I love what this guy is. His name is Yuri Bronnenbeffer. Yeah, easy for me to say, right? Uh, Beffer is his name, Yuri Bronnenbeffer. He was a, uh, a psychologist. And how many of you ever heard of Head Start? You've heard, heard of Head Start here in the United States? Yep. Uh, he's the guy that helped to get Head Start started in the United States. But he did all this research on what is real community? What is true friendships all about? And here's his definition. Put it on your outline. True community is a group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of each other. So it's a group of people who possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of each other. The key word there is irrational. Irrational. What is irrational in the story that we're looking at here in Scripture today? It's irrational that they would carry this guy everywhere he needed to go. It's irrational that they would crash through a roof on his behalf, not asking what it's in it for me. And see, you need to do the same thing. You need to become a roof crasher. You need to have people in your life that you say, you know what, I am so devoted to you. You are such a priority in my life that I'm going to do anything for you and I don't care if you ever, ever do something for me back in return. Now listen, your commitment doesn't have to be to crash through somebody's roof. It doesn't have to be destructive. But it does need to involve you doing two things. First of all, noticing and doing. So noticing and doing. You have these people in your life that you're so close to that you can notice even slight little changes in their life that something just isn't quite right. 
And so what do you do? You call them, you, you text them, you, you buy them a gift just because it isn't their birthday, it, it isn't Christmas, you just got it for them. You notice and you do. You notice and you do. But again, we are so busy so often that we don't notice the little changes in people's lives. And we don't know them in a deep enough level to know that even something's wrong. But from a scriptural standpoint, to establish biblical community, which you are called to have koinonia with three, four, five, six other people, apart from your family. To do that, you've got to notice, and you've got to do. Now, I want to go back to the story here, and I want to look at just a couple of lessons we can learn from the various people that are there in the story. So the first thing there on your outline is that true community will require that I trust. There's a lot of trust here. Imagine you're the man on the mat. You're the paralytic. Imagine the trust you have to have in your friends because they are tying a rope to each corner of your mat and they're going to lower you down. I mean, it's one thing as they're carrying you around on your mat if they drop you at ground level. It's another thing if they drop you from the roof. So imagine the, the trust that that takes. It's a big deal. He's got to be asking, has anybody tested the ropes? And what about the crowd? Remember, they're there to hear Jesus. And now he's going to come crashing through the roof? He's interrupting Jesus? What if the crowd gets hostile? Can he trust the crowd or not? And then can he trust Jesus? Is Jesus going to get hostile? He doesn't know Jesus at this point. He hasn't had an encounter with Jesus yet. All they've done is heard some stories about Jesus. I mean, as, as a public speaker myself, I know what it's like when there's interruptions and, and disruptions in the room. That can be very distracting. And that can be, if I'm being honest, that can be frustrating for me sometimes. I'm trying to preach God's word. And there's all kinds of things going on. By the way, notice that Jesus came to the earth before cell phones. Right? So that there's, there's all kinds of, what if Jesus, like, gets really mad at this guy? Who's going to protect him? It's not like he can run away. He's a paralytic. So huge amounts of trust. But he has to ask himself this question. Do I want to continue to lie here on this mat for the rest of my life? Or am I going to take a chance? Am I going to trust my friends? Am I going to trust the crowd? And most importantly, am I going to trust Jesus? And so he turns his friends and he nods his head and he says, let's do it, boys. I'm on board. I'm a willing participant in this little roof crashing party here. And as it turns out, because he makes that decision to trust, this encounter with Jesus he's about to have is going to forever change his life. All right, now imagine you're one of the friends. Here's the second point on your outline. True friendship always involves me growing and helping my friends grow spiritually. I mean, this was definitely a growing experience for these four men. They had never done something like this, and they've got to wonder again, how's Jesus going to respond to it? Is he going to be upset about it? I mean, all of a sudden, Jesus is going to have, you know, this man just lying there in front of him. 
So they lower this guy down by the ropes. There it is. And Jesus stops. He looks down at the man. And then he looks up. And he sees the sweaty faces, dirt all over him. A little bit anxious, a little bit hopeful. But Jesus sees those faces. Something amazing happens then. And before I tell you what that amazing thing is, let me make this point. Those four men, their heart's desire was we need to get our friend closer to Jesus. And we will do whatever it takes to get our friend close to Jesus. And you need to do the exact same thing. That needs to be your number one desire for your friends in life, is what is it going to take for me to help them get closer to Jesus? So that's what these guys do. They get their friend close to Jesus. Again, Jesus looks down at the man, but then Mark records, he looks up at them. And this is the amazing thing that we read. Here's the actual part of the scripture I want to read because I don't want you to miss this part of it. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Mark records that when Jesus saw what? When Jesus saw what? Their faith. Almost every single time, actually every other single time in Scripture, when we see a miracle done where Jesus heals somebody, it's always the faith of the person that's being healed that helps to start that process. But here it doesn't say that Jesus looked down and saw the faith of the man on the mat, the paralytic. No, Jesus looked up and he saw these four guys. He saw their faith. He saw their faith. And I want you to understand just how big this is. Do you know what your faith can do for other people? They may not believe but you can believe for them. You can have faith that, that Jesus is going to respond in their life in some way. And that's what these men here in the story did. It was their faith that helped their friend in this particular situation. See, when Jesus looked up at those guys, what he saw was the definition of true community that we talked about earlier. He saw an irrational commitment to the well-being of one of the group's members. Is that sinking in for you? Jesus saw an irrational commitment, an irrational faith, not for themselves, but for their friend. Again, you can do that for your family. You can do that for your friends. You can believe for them. Believe. And then help them to get closer to Jesus, knowing that as soon as they have that encounter with Jesus, things will begin to change for them. And then Jesus looks down at the man again. So Jesus saw their faith. He looks down at this man, and Jesus doesn't see a broken body. Jesus sees the same thing he sees in you and I. 
And that is a broken soul, broken spirit. And so let's look at the entirety then of verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the man on the mat, he's going, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't sign up to have my sins talked about here. That's not why I'm here at all. But that leads to the third point. It's there on your outline. True community will help me and I, them, lovingly deal with sin. One of the ways that you're going to know that you have true friends and that you're in true biblical community is that this sin issue will come up often. If you have friends, quote-unquote friends, and you never have the chance to call them out on their sin, and they're never calling you out on your sin, then you don't actually have friends according to Scripture of what biblical community is really all about. In true friendship, true biblical community, sin will always rise up to the surface. You see, while Jesus loves you where you're at, he doesn't want you to stay where you're at. And what Jesus will often do is he'll use the people in your life, the, these people that are your, your biblical wisdom and, and your counselors in life, he'll use them to point out the things in your life that aren't right, that need to be changed. We need people like that to expose and, and assist in overcoming sin. You know, it's so easy to think that we're all right when we're not gathered together with others in biblical community. I'll use myself as an example. It's easy if I'm just home alone, sitting on the sofa, to go, I'm a really humble person. Or watching, you know, the, the Hallmark movie of the week, or what I don't watch the Hallmark movie of the week, but you know what I'm saying? You know, something sappy and go, oh, that got me in the feels. I must be really compassionate. Or you go, you know what? I, I'm a really patient person. Well, that's easy to say when you're not around people. It's not until you're around people that you see, okay, am I humble? Am I compassionate? Do I really have patience? And you can fill in the blank with, you know, a lot of the other things that we talked about earlier that maybe is your mat. Anger, lust, pride, greed, envy, jealousy, rage, you know, whatever it is. It's easy to think that you're doing okay in those areas when you're by yourself. And so we need other people to help point out our blind spots. And so when you're in true biblical community, sin gets talked about and sin gets forgiven. You see, in this story, Jesus gives these four men more than what they ever had hoped for. They hoped that Jesus was going to heal his body. What Jesus did is he restored his soul. They wanted something for his physical health, but Jesus helped him with his spiritual health. So again, in biblical community, sin gets named and it gets dealt with. Now, I know that sounds scary, but trust me, it is a gift. You want people in your life that you are doing life deeply together with 
that you can call each other out when you're not acting in a way that Jesus would want you to act. What a gift. This man on the mat who was mocked and judged and assumed to be spiritually inferior, all of a sudden he hears the greatest words ever. Your sins are forgiven and you're whole. You're clean. You're forgiven. Now that brings us to one last point then. Because there's another aspect of this story that we haven't talked about yet. So look at point number four. True community is when we together reach out to love and serve others in the name of Jesus. Here's the part of the story I haven't mentioned to you yet. It's our old friends, the Pharisees. Remember who the Pharisees are? They were very what? Fair, you see, right? (laughs) They were the ones that they thought they were the spiritually elite. That there was nobody more religious than they were. And in, in that sense, there probably wasn't anybody more religious but religion in a negative sense. You know, the, the, the term religion means to do something over and over and over again without thought as to why you're doing it. So when you say something, somebody's doing something religiously, that's what they're doing. They're just going through the motions. And for the Pharisees, that's who they were. They had all 613 commands of the Old Testament memorized, and in their eyes, they were following all of them. And in many ways, they were. But then what they did is they added extra burdens. They were adding extra laws on top of the 613. They were very fair, you see, right? Their noses were up in the air. Well, guess what? When this whole story takes place, the Pharisees are in the room, and guess where they're sitting? They're sitting on the very front row. They were the first ones that had showed up to hear Jesus on that day. But guess what? The Pharisees hadn't brought anybody to hear Jesus. So let me ask you a question. In God's eyes, who do you think was greater on that day? The Pharisees, the so-called spiritual elite sitting on the front row? Or four uncouth, ethically challenged guys that have just crashed through this guy's roof? in order to lower their body down to be able to encounter Jesus. Which one is it? Who's greater in God's eyes? It's these four guys, right? And that's important for us to understand. See, this brings us to one of the fundamental connections that we have to associate in our minds, and that is this connection between loving God and loving people. Loving God and loving people. Let me explain it to you this way. You know, Proverbs 23, verse 7 says that as a man thinks, so he is. And so when your mind sort of drifts off, in other words, you're daydreaming, where does your mind tend to drift off to? What is the preoccupation of your mind? Well, I can tell you if you're a business owner, probably it's going to, how do I get more sales? How do I get more profits? If you're a coach, where does your mind drift off to? probably drifts off to designing some new plays and how can I motivate the team in a better way? If you're a a mom and you've just had a a brand new baby and you're going out with your husband, it's the first time that you're letting your infant at home with a babysitter or maybe a relative and you're there at the restaurant, where's that mom's mind drifting off to? Where's it going? Back to the baby at home. How about the average 18-year-old hormone-filled young male? Where's his mind drifting off to most of the time? 
same place that an 80-year-old's male's mind drifts off to most of the time, right? What, I, what I'm saying is when we're alone and, and our minds start to drift off, they, they tend to drift off into the things that we think are really, really important. And so here's the question for you. Where does God's mind drift off to? Now, don't get me wrong. God is God. He can think all things at all times. But you get what I'm saying? What is it that is his priority? What is the preoccupation of his mind? Well, we know the answer to that because Jesus, God in the flesh, came to the earth and told us that the heart of the Father, the mind of the Father, always goes towards his people this creation of his, and how can I redeem them? How can I restore them? How can I get them back into a right relationship with me? And that's important for us to know because it's impossible for you and I to truly love God if we don't in turn then love people in the same ways that he loved us. And the truth of the matter is the more you're growing spiritually, the more your heart should be drawn to people that are far from God and your mind should be preoccupied with what can I do to reach out and help bring them in and to not only the church, but into God's kingdom. And what can I do to help them and to serve them? Jesus' closest friend, a guy by the name of John, he records this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 29. He says, if anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, then he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You have got to love both. Let me say that to you here on this first day of the year in 2023, both live and online. If you don't love people, then you don't really love God. It's a package deal. They go together. If you don't love people, then you don't really love God. In the same way that if you don't know multiplication, you can't do algebra. One is foundational to the other. And so loving God and loving people, they go together. Oh, sure, you may know a lot of the Bible and be quite churchy and avoid scandalous sin in your life. You may even be thought to be spiritually advanced by other people around you. But ultimately, if you're not loving people, then you don't really love God. And that's what had happened with the Pharisees. They were very religious. They were very fair, you see. But they had no love for this paralytic, and they had brought no one that day to hear about Jesus. And listen, I get it. I get it. Sometimes it's easier to be the Pharisee. It's easier to sit on the front row. Because picking up somebody's mat and carrying it, that's hard. Crashing through a roof, that's hard. But remember what biblical community is. It's an irrational commitment to the well-being of the members. That takes time. That takes devotion. That means we've got to make it a priority. We've got to overcome some tough things. So we need to learn from Jesus because Jesus loved all people. Jesus loved the Pharisees that day just as much as he loved 
the people on the roof that had crashed through. Jesus loved his critics in that room just as much as he loved the man there on the mat. And so for all the people to hear, he turns to the Pharisees and he says, just so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sin, and then he turns to the paralytic man and he says to him, son, get up, pick up your mat, and walk home. And that's exactly what happens. In that moment, this paralytic man is healed. Jesus first had healed him spiritually, and now physically he is healed as well. And he picks up his mat, and he walks out the door. Can you imagine the party those five guys had that night? You thought your New Year's Eve bash last night was good. In fact, it was so good, most of you didn't even show up here today. Hopefully you're tuning in on that. But could you imagine the party they had that night? You know what they did with that mat, right? They burn it. They burn it. It wasn't needed any longer. These four guys had taken their friend hoping that he would be physically healed, but he had gotten so much more. And oh man, what a party they threw. This guy, this paralytic, his world had gone from a three-foot by six-foot long mat to as far as his little legs would take him. He had been healed, not just physically, but his heart, his soul. His sins had been forgiven. I mean, emotionally and physically, relationally, spiritually, he was the healthiest of all five of them. Now, I want you to flash forward. It's many, many years later. They're now all in their 80s. And slowly but surely, the other four guys, they're starting to use canes and walkers. But the paralytic guy, or the former paralytic guy, he's still got a fresh pair of legs. He's still going strong. And one by one, all of his friends, they die off. And as this former paralytic reflects back on his life, he realizes that the greatest gift I was ever given wasn't my legs. The greatest gift that I was ever given was my poor friends. These four guys that loved me enough that even though society said that I should be executed, society said that I should be shunned, they loved me enough to care for me when I was down, and they loved me enough to get me to Jesus. And not only did I get my legs, but I got my salvation as well. They had formed this fellowship of the mat, this koinonia, this community of the mat. And I want to say to all of you here today, and those of you that are tuning in online, the fellowship of the mat can still exist to this day. But it's going to take you being very, very intentional in this brand new year of saying, you know what, I'm not going to get busy with all the things that the world says that I need to get busy with. No, I'm going to make it a priority to have three, four, five, six other people I'm just going to do life deeply together with. And we're going to have an irrational commitment to the well-being of one another. So what's that going to involve? Well, number one, it's going to involve being here in the building on Sunday mornings. Again, through COVID, online viewing was great. But we need to gather together. 
Again, when you're home alone or you're just with your family, you can't have all these things exposed to you that need to be exposed. How can you truly love other people if you're not seeing other people? So those of you that are online, if you're sick a week, that's what online's for. If you're on vacation, I'm going to be on vacation in a couple weeks. That's what online's for. But you need to gather together. Book of Hebrews says, do not, uh, do not deny, do not, do not neglect the gathering together of yourselves. And again, if for whatever reason you can't be here at Exponential, find another church. Or open up your living room. If, if you don't want to be here, open up your living room like Mike has done at our Hagerstown, Maryland campus. Invite other people in. Don't be a Pharisee. Remember, the Pharisees showed up to watch. It was these four guys on the roof that they brought somebody with them. So invite somebody to be here with you. Invite somebody into your home if you need to stay at home. And then join a life group. Be a part of one of our life groups. And you're going, well, go with the life groups that you guys have. You know, they don't meet on the day that I want. Or, you know, it's not the type of group that I want. Then start your own. You don't need any training to be a life group leader. What is a life group about? It's about doing life together. I mean, anymore, it's so easy. You just pop in a video of some sort. Let somebody else do the teaching for you, and then you just discuss it as a group. Or I love what Mike and our Hagerstown campus do. They have breakfast from 9 to 10 together. 10 to 11, they watch us here in, in Harrisburg. Then from 11 to 12, they discuss what I'm talking about. So in just a couple moments here, they're going to actually talk about this message and how it's applying to their lives. And they're able to point out, you know, in each other's lives, you know, hey, here's where you're doing well. Here's where you need a little bit of work. And they pray for one another. They encourage one another. So start your own group. I'd encourage some of you that stick around on Sundays. Use our living room. Use the back room that we have. Form a life group just on Sunday mornings as soon as we're done. Take an hour. Talk about what's going on. And then we have what's called small circle here at Exponential as well. That's a one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And that you're going to intentionally be with somebody for anywhere from 12 months to 18 months. And talk about really doing life deeply together with somebody. Oh, man, you get that in there, and you go deep during that. And so if you need to be discipled, let us know. Or if you say, you know what, I should probably be discipling somebody. Gilbert talks about that all the time, that we're called to be disciple makers. I probably should be discipling somebody. Let us know, and we'll help you to get started with that. And then again, don't forget to invite people to join us here or join us online. It's not always going to be easy. Mats are going to be heavy and awkward. There's always going to be some ruse that we need to crash through whether they're ruse of busyness or fear or conflict. But once you find the fellowship of the mat, you'll never do life again without it because it's where healing and wholeness begin. It's the place where people first usually encounter Jesus. That's what this series is all about. How do we encounter Jesus? That's what I want for you. This irrational commitment that you have to other people so that you're healed, not just from the things that you think you need healed of financially and relationally and all that, but that spiritual healing comes as well. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the start of another brand new year. And Lord, I pray that every single person that is listening, whether live or in person or they're tuning in later on to watch, 
Lord, I pray that they would take this message very, very seriously and that they would take your command to live in biblical community seriously. That you have called us to live in koinonia, that deep intimacy, a deep fellowship with others. That there are 72 different things in the New Testament alone that we're told to do with one another. And we can't do that by ourselves. And so, Lord, help us to have the commitment to building those types of friendships throughout this entire year. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't keep that good news then to ourselves, that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees, that we would invite people in to our building on Sundays. We would invite people into our life groups. We'd invite people into our homes. Lord, help us to be like those four guys on the roof, have an irrational commitment to the well-being of one of our members, to say, you know what, we're going to do whatever it takes because it's not about us. It's all about our friend here, and it's all about getting our friend to Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to be like them. Help us to be roof crashers here in 2023. And, Lord, I can't help but be reminded by your spirit right now of last year's message that I gave as we started a new year, and that was that we just need to win the day. Win the day. Can't do anything about yesterday. You can't do anything about tomorrow, but you can do something about today. And so help us to be reminded that I can eat right today. I can exercise today. I can read my Bible today. I can pray today. I can attend church today. I can be a friend today. I can win today. Not worry about if I'm going to be able to do it the rest of my life. I'll just do it today. And the next day I wake up and I win that day. And then the next day I wake up and I win that day. And if I miss a day, then I don't worry myself with that because another day rolls around and I can win that day. And so, Lord, I know many people are making some New Year's resolutions. Help them to just win each and every day. Win each day. Again, Lord, help us to realize that we need each other. That, as we read in the book of Proverbs, that, that iron sharpens iron. We need each other in order to help make us better. So help us to have that commitment and that devotion having close, deep friends here in this year and then beyond. Thank you, Jesus, that encounters with you change us forever. Help us to have many encounters with you throughout this year. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.